0: Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. Earlier this year, I interviewed Robert Smith. He's the mathematician who models zombie outbreaks as well as actual diseases, and has also written extensively on the subject of our mutual favorite show, Doctor Who. Robert was kind enough to put me in touch with his co-author, Anthony Wilson, who's my guest today. Anthony studied music composition, became a primary school teacher, and has written a variety of choral music, including a requiem. And, of course, he writes about Doctor Who. We had a wide-ranging discussion covering everything from the importance of choosing the people you share your work with carefully, especially in the early stages, what we can learn from how kids respond to the things they're curious about, the importance of structure and how sometimes the best things in life come to us purely by accident. Here's our conversation. Anthony Wilson, I am really excited to talk to you today because you have exactly the kind of fascinatingly varied background that I find really, really interesting. And so I know you you teach, you do all sorts of musical things. You also are Robert Smith's partner in writing crime people should remember Robert. We talked to him a while ago, and actually I was I was just thinking a minute ago, given our um, time zone near snafu, that I think we should leave the mathematics to him. That's so, definitely,
1: definitely a preference, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I don't know if there's a particular place that makes sense to you to start, or if it would be easier just to kind of give us an overview of how you've ended up doing the things that you're doing, or...
1: Okay, I I suppose that's, well, (laughs) the overview of how I've ended up doing the things I'm doing is pretty much completely by accident.
0: That's a great overview. Tell us more.
1: (laughs) Um, Everything I've ended up doing, practically everything I've ended up doing, I haven't intended to do. The only thing I probably intended to do was write music, which was when I was in my sort of mid-teens. That was definitely what I was going to do, you know, next Mozart or whatever, whatever. Mm. Uh, Not the next Mozart. (laughs) I know know this to be true. I'm not the next anything to a large extent, but that was what I wanted to do. The writing has come about accidentally. The teaching came about accidentally. Running shows, musical theatre with children and adults has all come about sort of accidentally. I've just been in a particular place and someone said, would you mind doing this? I'll give it a go. Yeah, why not? So pretty much nothing has been planned. Nothing has been masterminded. And the only thing that was, well, I I like the music I've written. Well, it is what it is.
0: (laughs) So are there, I mean... With, with all of that accidental kind of stuff, which, frankly, you have a pretty impressive list of accidental things. I wouldn't <laughs> mind having a few more of those in my life. Um, is there any that stands out to you as a particularly unusual sequence of events or something that surprised you in terms of how well it went or how much you have enjoyed it?
1: The writing with Robert, particularly, is was both surprising and incredibly enjoyable. Um, Oh, I've been thinking about this all day, and thinking about sort of different questions and different ways you might think about things. Um, I learned music, I studied music, mm-hmm. um, and with with a sort of specific intent to compose and so forth. Um, I never learned writing; that was never planned. Never what I was going to do. I didn't even do sort of English. A-levels, I don't know what the equivalent is in America, but I did my English GCSE, and, and that was the end of it. Um, and then and then it's all, all down to Doctor Who. Lots of these things end up being down to Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> uh, I,
0: you could be down to worse things.
1: <laughs> it could be down to worse things, yeah. I was re- reading a series of books, and I found an online guide, and there was a mistake on the online guide. And then the online guide said if you find any errors, drop us an email. So I dropped Robert an email and said, I think this is an error. And he said, oh, you're right. Do you want to write an entry? Um, (laughs) And that was hugely exciting. So um, for me, you know, continuity buff or whatever, to go through a book and find all the points of continuity and so forth. So I wrote that really quickly. Um, I was sufficiently excited, I think, that I just sat down with the computer next to me and read the book and was writing it at the time. And thus began a beautiful friendship. And then a few years later, when Robert was asked to write the book that eventually morphed into Bookworm, he said, yes, but I don't think I can do it on my own. So I've got this bloke I know in England. <laughs> I had never met at that point. We've only met three mm-hmm. times. We've been friends for 15 years or so. Um, and would I like to do it with him? And yes, I would. Um, we started, this was a long time ago, and the book, went through lots of metamorphoses we started I was very lucky to have Robert there as an editor who sat there and going this 15 line sentence can we have a bit of a think about this sentence um, and so I've kind of I've learned that trade through through practice through having Robert sit there and go not sure this is working stop mm-hmm. it you're creating yet another long list of things people don't want to read about and and by reading actively rather than passively.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I think, I think you always have to read a book and, you know, if you're reading Agatha Christie, it's your duty as a reader to try and be ahead of the story and work out who the murderer was. But actually reading beyond that and going, why is he using that language? How is he doing that?
2: Mm-hmm. And then I
1: find myself, you know, little post-it notes, writing things like furiously, because for whatever reason, something I was thinking about yesterday, I need to get that adverb in there. And I don't know whether that's what writers do. I don't know whether I'm a writer, really. I just know I've written.
0: If you, uh, you're a writer.
1: Yeah. Well. Well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the book's <laughs> gone down well, so I'm pleased with that. It's bookworm, by the way, Robert Smith and Anthony Wilson, available from ATB Publishing. Shame <laughs> plug.
0: As well, you should. As well, you should. Anyone who's written a book or, you know, recorded an album or anything like that, as far as I'm concerned, should plug away because that's Absolutely. no small thing. <laughs> So so it just all came together.
1: It, it all came together, yeah. And, um, you know, in the process I've made a very good friend and I'm sort of within a slightly different community. I was never involved in Doctor Who fandom. I'm still not hugely, but I've now met some of them, chatted some of them and so forth. I'm not sociable, I think, in that sense particularly. I'm a bit of an ivory tower kind of creator, for want of a better word. Mm-hmm if that makes sense. I'm, you know, I work with Robert, but I'm not, don't, don't do conventions and like that.
0: Oh, I was just going to ask if you've ever done any of them.
1: No, no, my brother has, but not me.
0: Your brother has.
1: It, it does conventions. He's been to conventions. Yeah. We're okay. A bit, a bit the same Star Trek, Doctor Who, all that kind of stuff. Children of the eighties and nineties. <laughs> yeah,
0: I hear that. So, I'm just curious, since, since you ended up becoming a writer inadvertently, accidentally, through, through Doctor Who, is there any other thing that, that that particular show or any other has led you to in your actual life?
1: Not really, no. I was just, again, I was, I was thinking about this. I find the process of writing very, very difficult, mm-hmm. very, very time-consuming, and very, very frustrating. Um, I read, and if you come across Brandon Sanderson no okay Fa- american fantasy writer from utah excellent excellent stuff and he he releases incredible numbers of books and he was talking today about on a, on his blog i was reading it just before I, I contacted you talking about how there are basically two types of writers the ones who think what they're writing is good while they're writing it and then thinks it's dreadful afterwards <laughs> and the ones who think it's dreadful while they're writing it and then are pleasantly surprised when they reread it
0: That sounds about right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it feels right. I'm definitely the first type. I'm someone who thinks, oh, this is great. I'm really enjoying this. And I'll look at it and think, this is awful. And then I tweak and tweak and change and change and alter and alter, which I think is part of the process. I think you need to do that. Absolutely. Anyone who can go, I wrote this fully formed and it was perfect. Is lying. Is lying. Or once again, (laughs) Mozart. Although although the, the bit in Amadeus where... Salieri looks at his scores and goes, there are no mistakes in them. That's a complete lie. There are loads of mistakes in them <laughs> when he's changed and scribbled out and altered and so forth. So even Mozart struggled. I sound like I worship Mozart. I really don't.
0: <laughs> well, if you did, I mean, there there were worse people you could worship, I think. This is in, true. In terms of talent. So then how is it that you, I mean, I know you said accidentally, but I know you teach in a school. Yeah. And you do musical theater and I think you've said that some of the music you've written is for your work in the school or am I misremembering that?
1: Um, I've, yeah, I've written stuff for the school. Um, I also run a church choir. In fact, I've run church choir since I was 14. Um, and I've wrote and have written a lot of music for that over the years. Um, most of it in a wild flurry towards the end of my teens and in my early 20s. Um. So yeah, I, I sort of, I kind of do what's necessary, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, I used to write music because I wanted to. Or this sounds like a strange thing, but I suspect it might be more common to prove that I could. Okay. So in my, it must be when I was at university. I thought, right, I'm going to write a requiem mass to prove that I can.
2: Hmm.
1: Um. And about ten years later using a combination of sort of poppy songs I'd written again in my late teens and early twenties. And then some new ones. I thought, right, I'm going to write an album to prove that I can. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've done both of those things sort of off my own bat, but pretty much everything else I've written has been for purpose. Mm -hmm. There's, There's been a need. Someone said, we need incidental music for this play. Can you write it? Oh, we're doing the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. There are songs in it. Can you set the words to music? Um, so I've done that and I've enjoyed that and it's been good. And most recently I've written the music for successively both of my daughter's christenings. Oh, wow. So they both have an anthem each.
0: That's cool. Not everybody can say that.
1: Well, <laughs> you know, you, you, do, you do, I suppose, what you, what you can do. There are other things I might have loved to do that I wouldn't have been able to do, but I, I, I'm pleased with it. I'm pleased with being able to do that that they've got and they're recorded so they'll be able to go back to them and go, dad did that. Mm -hmm. And that matters.
0: So how does it feel to have written a book versus hearing a piece of music that you've written performed for the first time?
1: Oh, well, there's a weird. (laughs) I don't know. I think writing the the book is probably more satisfying just because by the time you've done it, it's done. Mm -hmm. Whereas all the music I do, I play for and conduct and sing in. So I'm not really thinking about, oh, isn't this sounding good? Or, oh, I wish I'd changed that or anything. I'm kind of going, right, no, tenors, come in, come in, please. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm more sort of panicked about the actual process, whereas the, the lag time from when you go, right, this book is finished, to, aha, this book has been published, is huge. mm mm-hmm. Whereas you're very sort of in the moment with the with the music. So with the choral stuff, um, I'm doing it live, you know, in the church as it happens. Um, the the piece I wrote for my second daughter, May's Christening, which was a couple of weeks ago, um, the vicar came up afterwards and said, you looked shattered after that. <laughs> Absolutely, I was. Um, the album's a different thing because that, in a way, I, I sat there for – three weeks, and built all the backing tracks. I did, did the whole thing with wow. backing tracks. Turned up with a recording of the backing tracks to a recording studio for six hours and recorded them all straight, and it was done. And a little bit like the book, oh. it was then done. And the total number of people who've listened to that album is about four, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of them and I enjoy it, so that's all right.
0: Well, it is important that, you know, that you value it, even if, hmm. if someone else doesn't.
1: Uh, It's not that someone else doesn't, it's that I don't share it. Okay. Um, I I did with a few people. Um, Someone said, oh, this is very depressing, and they're right. (gasps) um, No, they're they're absolutely right. Paraphrase paraphrase someone I heard. I think it was Martin Joseph I heard in concert. He said, and it's true of him and it's true of me, that uh, we both make Leonard Cohen sound like Julie Andrews. (laughs) Um, so, yeah, it, it is It is depressing, and that's fine. And that, that's fine. But it was very much writing about Doctor Who is writing about Doctor Who. Setting Latin or Greek words or even English words for a religious service is performing that task.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Writing all the lyrics and the music for an album is almost by definition at least semi-autobiographical.
0: That makes sense.
1: And not all of it. You know, one of the songs about Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time saga. That's Mm -hmm. not really autobiographical. I don't believe I've ever had my mind taken over by a dark shadow lord. Um, (laughs) or if I have, if I have I've never noticed. (laughs) Um, but some of it is semi-autobiographical. And that makes it much harder to share. Mm Mm-hmm. So you choose who you share it with. Yes. Um, and once you've made that choice, you get their reaction to it, um, and that was enough. In a way.
0: Fair enough.
1: It was something I wanted to do to do it. But hey.
0: Yes, and you know,
1: I'm I- not sure quite where to end that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, that's, all right. that's where it stopped.
0: But, you know, I'm thinking about that. And first of all, I should say that I, I did not mean to imply that, you know, someone came up to you and said, oh, your album is terrible. But but there is the notion that, you know, not everybody's going to be your audience. And so, you know, the fact yeah. that that it's possible that someone will say, I didn't like your book or I didn't like this or I didn't like that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that it wasn't their thing.
1: Absolutely. Um, but but sorry, I'm interrupting you. Now. No, go ahead. Um, dependent on your mindset that can be very very hard to take yes um and you know actually no one said it was no one said it was bad because i chose very carefully the people i gave it to Mm -hmm. Um, and they're all far too polite to say it was bad to me if they thought it was anyway um but the book going out there has been a much much more interesting experience the reviews have been very positive but even when you get the tiny negatives you've got to have a mindset that can go, okay, that's fine. You didn't like that or Mm -hmm. you disagreed with that or whatever, Um, which is fine. And we're actually, there were some errors in the book that have been picked up in review. So they are going into volume two as a, let us laugh at ourselves Mm -hmm. method of, yeah, we made these errors. We shouldn't have done. Hey ho. Um, (laughs) Which is, which is one way to deal with it. Right. Again, Harder if it's you you're putting on the page
0: yes much harder
1: um so yeah I don't know it's it's the battle or well, the battle I have I can't speak to anyone else the battle I have is being horrendously self-critical and so I struggle to like all the things I've done there are things I'll listen to and particularly early things I've written that I reread, I just think, God, I wouldn't do that now, which is great because it means I've got better. Right. Proved, improved. Um, and I can recognise that and I could, I could change and so forth. But at the same time, it's hard to have someone else pointed out if you're already of the mindset to be self-critical. Yes. You want other people to go, actually, I like this, when you're feeling, I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. The moment someone else concurs with your, I'm not so sure, you can spiral down if you yes. are not of a hard enough, strong enough mindset. And sometimes I am of a hard enough, strong enough mindset, and sometimes I'm really not.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's completely normal. But I'm glad that you're bringing it up because you know, on the one hand, it's super easy for me to sit here and say it doesn't necessarily mean your work is bad. It's just not your audience. It's it's easy for me to say that. It's easy for me to forget it. it it's yeah. much easier said than done. And I think you know. I think there's an impulse, and I wonder sometimes how much of it is just human nature and how much of it is conditioned into us to instinctively doubt everything that we do and and be so critical of our own work. I know when I finished my MFA program, I was one of the few people that I knew in my program who still liked my book. (laughs) I I was really, really shocked by the number of people who said, I hate this book. The only thing this book is good for is to get me a diploma. I really hate this book. I'm never looking at it again once I finish and all that. And I was like, you know, my book's not perfect, but I really like my book. I like my characters. I, you know, I still want to do work on it, but I don't hate it. And, and I was really, really struck by that to the point where I started to wonder if there was something wrong with me because I still liked my book. So it, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those weird things. Everybody, everybody hears it differently, but sometimes I think it's sort of like when you see a photo of yourself, you know, everybody says, Oh Lord, this is a terrible photo. I hate this photo. This is horrible. Burn it, you know? Mm. And sometimes I think, you know, is it really that bad or have we just all heard that so many times that, that it's become a part of us regardless of what we might actually think. Maybe we kind of lose track.
1: I think that's, that's interesting. I think there's a possibly- couple of things going on there um i mean, knowing nothing about your mfa program or anything like that i think some people perhaps do do the book to get through the diploma mm-hmm. and possibly some people do the book because they care about the book they're writing so there's there's sort of differences of the way you're coming towards it in the True. first place um, but i i don't know there are people there are people out there and i envy them in many ways who are able to go this will do. 90% of mm-hmm. people will like it. It's fine. And I think it's really hard to be a perfectionist. Yes. And I've had to kind of learn not to be in a way. And I remember, oh, I'm tangenting all over the place. <laughs> That's okay. A, a friend of mine a long time ago was doing teacher training. And she had to give it up because she was a perfectionist. Because her lesson plans would say, and then the children will do this. Oh. And they didn't. No. <laughs> and and she couldn't she couldn't roll with it. I mean, I, I think you know, valid reflection on a lesson afterwards is possibly well, that was awful. I will never do that again. And mm-hmm. that's all the reflection you need to do. But if you're a perfectionist within teaching, that's almost impossible. But on the grounds that teaching is you know six or seven hours a day, and then you're on to the next day and the next day, right? you can lose the perfectionism in that aspect, but you don't lose it in others. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with perfectionism is nothing is perfect.
0: Exactly. And there's also the perfectionism of, if I can't make it perfect, I'm not going to bother.
1: Yeah, that's very easy to fall into.
0: Yes. Yeah. But I know exactly what you're talking about with teaching. I used to teach with a guy who was... <sighs> I don't know if it's accurate to more accurate to say that he was a perfectionist or more accurate to say that he had a touch of OCD, but he he was the kind of guy who I, I would teach in his room sometimes, and I was always afraid that I would leave the stapler slightly misaligned on the desk. Right. <laughs> and and he had the same kind of thing. I mean, he would have a set of directions that the kids had to follow step by step by step, mm-hmm. and would be you know upset with them if instead of going to the menu that said file, save, they would just hit the little disc icon because they knew that it did the same thing. Right. Or if the internet went down and, and it flummoxed all of his plans for the day, he just couldn't function. So it, you know, and I was just like, okay, so you make up something else, but then I'm a much more seat of my pants kind of person with things like that. So that didn't bother me as much. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you definitely, I mean the idea that, and then the children will do this. Yeah think you would find out in a hurry that um, in fantasy land, the children will do this, but in the real world. I'm not
1: even certain they will <laughs> in fantasy land, to be honest. <laughs> One of my maxims of teaching is when you have explained the thing 15 times over from every possible direction, so there is no possibility that any child has even vaguely misunderstood, at least three children in that room have no idea what you're talking about. Yes.
0: <laughs> and there will be at least three more ways that you'll have to think of. To explain
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: This. Yes. So, so you went from music into teaching, or did, or were they sort of the same process?
1: No, not at all. Um, I had no idea what I was going to do when I finished my degree, and my tutor said, "Oh, there's a school down the road looking for a teacher. Do you want to do it?" And I said, essentially, "I'll give it a go. I don't know much about it, but I have been taught." It's the worst thing about teaching. Everyone's been taught, so everything everyone thinks they know what right should be happening. Um, And quite rightly, having got a certain distance out of the process, the school turned around and said, are you a qualified teacher? And I said, no. And they said, (laughs) ah. So quite rightly at that point, the school went, uh, we don't think we can do this. And they were right to make that call. And I was hugely disappointed. So I thought, okay, maybe this is what I should be doing.
2: Mm. So
1: I signed myself up for a teacher training program with about four days to go before it started Um, and ended up initially teaching music in secondary schools and eventually transitioning to primary which is where I probably should always have found my niche.
0: Fair enough. So is, is there a particular reason that you prefer primary over secondary?
1: I think, I think actually it's the style of the way it's taught more than anything else. I, I enjoyed a lot of the secondary teaching. Um, I lost a lot of faith in the United Kingdom secondary school music curriculum which required things that um I don't think were helpful mm. I'm not going to go into too much detail on that um but primary I become a teacher of everything ah whereas secondary I was a teacher of music and there's nothing.
0: Okay that makes sense so you get to do you have a, a finger in, in everything, yeah. essentially. Yeah. You,
1: you're with your one class for all the time. Mm-hmm. And you're teaching the maths and literacy and history and sociology and geography and whatever you fancy. Philosophy, I try and get as much stuff as I can in there.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting,
1: interesting, fun things. Um, whereas secondary, it's subject specific. So I think that's that more than anything. But I did enjoy teaching secondary as well.
0: Okay. And and you've been doing primary for quite a while now, right?
1: Uh 19 years.
0: That's that's a good while.
1: <laughs> a fair while, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, you must like it or you wouldn't be there anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm lucky with the school I work at as well. I travel quite a long distance to work at the school I work at because it's a school that's good to work at.
0: And you do uh, several things there.
1: Oh, uh yeah, um I teach year 6. I run all the music. I'm the deputy head. I'm the school business manager. I run all the data. There we go.
0: I want to just hear all that and think. When do you sleep?
1: <laughs> I, I, the funny thing is, I I used to joke, or when I do a show, because I do those in the evening. The the little biog of me on the thing does. I've done this many shows. These children. This adult group. Church choir in etc cetera, etc cetera. and the final line is always okay. in his spare time he's deputy head of the primary school <laughs> it <laughs> does it does begin yeah. to feel a little bit ridiculous it's the curse of being someone who struggles to say no mhm um and um and because there is nothing i do that i don't enjoy
0: that's such a beautiful and rare thing to be able to say
1: it really is it really is i've been very very lucky but the problem is when you enjoy something, you know, like an alcoholic, you struggle to stop. Mm-hmm. So if you think, actually, I'd really like to do that show, or I'd really like to do that, or I love working with these kids, or that adult group's great, or yes, Robert, I'd love to write a book about it, <laughs> I've never done that before. Um, and you end up going, oh, I've got, got a lot of things on my list all of a sudden. <laughs> but it's all good. It's all good.
2: Awesome. You have
1: to be careful you have to be careful that you don't sacrifice the people closest to you because you're out all the time. Yes. And that's been an interesting thing since my children have been born.
0: I would imagine so.
1: Making sure that I'm still seeing them and spending time with them and and so on. But I do.
0: Is there any secret to how you've balanced things since then?
1: Bedtime. (laughs) Bedtime is the secret. Um, The children, at the moment, go to bed at seven. Most of my rehearsals start at half past seven or quarter to eight or eight o'clock. And I get up stupidly early to get into school stupidly early to do all the admin stuff I need to do in the mornings and on my admin days. So I can leave at such a time that I can get home and see them and put them to bed before they go to bed. And I spend the bulk of the weekends with them where I can. But bedtime is key to be able to come home and get that gap and have, Mm -hmm. um, on a good day, a couple of hours. Or a bad day, three quarters of an hour, but I have that time with them every day. Still,
0: well, that makes perfect sense to me. That that's a lovely way to do it.
1: Yeah, it it works. I I couldn't do a job where I got in later than bedtime every day because I just wouldn't see them, and I couldn't mm-hmm. do that.
0: No, and you shouldn't.
1: Yeah no, no.
0: are Are they old enough that you can do any music with them yet?
1: Not quite yet. Um, the older one is. Just over two and a half, and the younger one will be a year in a month. Oh wow! Um, so they're they're both very young, but um, Elsie sings a lot. Um, she sings songs that she makes up, and I sit there going. You keep coming back to the root note, you know what you're doing. You've got an instinct for this. You know, it's going to a party, going to a party. It goes round and round. But it keeps coming back to the same place it should do. La, 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 And you think, yep, you're coming back to the same note every time. You know how key structure works and you are two and a half. Well done. But possibly I'm imagining that and just being a proud father and making the whole thing up. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that, and I'll play and she'll sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and things like that. But I hope they're musical. I suspect they're going to rebel and both become rugby players. Well, no, nothing, you know. nothing against rugby. It's just not my world.
2: Right.
0: <laughs> you never know, though. You never know what, what might stick around.
1: I, I, my, if I have something I want them to do, it's to find something they love and do it. And I don't care what that is. And I will support them 100% of the way. It's music, dance, rugby, cricket, I don't know, garage music, gar- <laughs> whatever. I can't even pronounce. I get all those to get that wrong. Um, I don't mind what they do, but find something you love, do it and do it well. Do it properly. If you're going to do something, do it properly. Don't drift.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And I, I think, you know, that's really what kids need is the permission to go and find their own thing.
1: Oh yeah. And adults. Yes. I think a lot of adults need to be given permission to go and find their own thing.
0: We do, you know, isn't that funny? Because I, you know, as a coach, I definitely talk about permission because it is, it's, it's this thing that I think, you know, you grow up with needing a permission slip to do this or needing a, at least here a hall pass to go use the loo during school or, or whatever. And and suddenly somehow i think we all feel like we have inherent permission to go do math or science or build something or do something that that many people would call useful but if it's writing music writing a book auditioning for a play whatever we feel like oh i don't know am i really allowed to do that i don't i'm not sure that i am that's like that was on so-and-so's list of things that are a waste of time and therefore I feel like I'm not allowed to do it. And it's funny when, when I first heard it put as, you know, somebody might need permission to do this. It struck me so strangely, like, you know, we're not children, but it really is a huge thing with a lot of people. I find myself doing it and plenty of other people do too. It is. And
1: it's a, it's a funny thing. Um, My brother talks about how one of the best ways to define things is by looking at the opposite of them. Mm-hmm. So if no one had permission to write music, write a book or audition for a play, the world would have no music, no books right. and no theater. And then what would be the point mm-hmm. of all the maths and the science? I mean, I, I accept, you know, Robert is doing wonderful things with his maths. You can calculate time zones Absolutely. Can as well. Um, um, but, but we need people to write books and write music and perform
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: and do those things. And we need people to love that and want to do that. And we need to say, that's okay. That's a choice. That's as yes. valid a choice as a nine to five job in the city. It might be less secure mm-hmm. and you might have to take some risks while doing it. Um, but it's okay to do. And, you know, like I say, whatever my kids do to the best of my ability, I will support them to do it.
0: Yes. And, and you know you had talked about when when you first started talking about that i was thinking you know like we were saying they may or may not become musicians yeah um cuz i don't think that we had actually talked about this before right this second but i really think one of the biggest gifts that my parents gave me was choral music because really? i've been singing in choir since i was 4 i just recently sang the fare requiem again oh
1: and, you I know love the requiem.
0: exactly that yeah <laughs> It was one of those things where you forget how great it is, even though, you know, you forget exactly how great it is and how much you love it until you go in and you start doing it again and it just washes over you and you go,
2: Oh, this is so beautiful.
0: Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing like my brother rebelled. My brother will not sing.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: Um, he will now sometimes with his kids, but I remember hearing him one time when he didn't realize anyone else was in the house, I heard this voice singing swing low, sweet chariot. And I remember standing there going, who is that? It's really good. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, he, he wouldn't sing. He wouldn't sing hymns on Sunday morning. He certainly wasn't going to be in the choir. That was like his, his rebellion, I think from, from the rest of us. Whereas I could have made it my rebellion, but then I would have missed it. So I wasn't going to do that. But, but yeah, it's, it's such a, it's such a huge gift to have something like that that is so readily available. Granted, depending on where you live, a good choir may or may not be readily available. But at least it's it doesn't it's even still be there. It doesn't always.
1: It doesn't need to be good. It needs to be the experience of it. And something like the four a requiem. There's this any kind of choral music. There's only, there's two ways to experience it. And I always find this interesting as well because there are people who will, you know spend time. With. Hunting down the perfect CD of their mm-hmm. best recording of the Four Requiem, which is a totally different experience to standing there in the tenor section singing yes, the lines.
0: Absolutely.
1: So there's completely two sides you can experience any sort of music. There is the the listening to it and the performing it, and they cross over when you're singing "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot" in the choir in the <laughs> that, in the shower. <laughs> yeah. um, you know that that's that's crossing over. You're you're listening and you're you're moving between them. They're, they're very fluid. I also think I was very lucky I was exposed to music from a very, very, very young age, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's that's key. I mean, I, I played the piano from the age of four, and so by the time I hit my teenage rebellion, I wanted none of anything of the, the wicked works of my parents, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no way I was giving up piano because I already knew how valuable it was. right. And how useful it was so you know while I was busily arguing with my parents left right and center about their decisions and this that and the other I was still sitting there doing my hour-long practice a day mm-hmm. because it was it mattered to me it was yeah, not enough yeah mm-hmm. it mattered to me and I knew and again um I was lucky I had supportive parents
0: yes and, and in fairness to my brother I should say while while he doesn't sing he is that revoltingly talented person who can (laughs) play anything he picks up. So he was, you know, the first chair trumpet in high school and he played, he still plays piano. He played pipe organ for a while. He plays guitar a lot now, you know, he plays harmonica. And I'm just sitting there going one, I wouldn't, I don't even have one.
1: (laughs) The the music didn't go away. It just got channeled in a different direction.
0: Right, right. He's just as fascinated by it as any of the rest of us. So. So it's still there. And and with the kids, I think even more so because they'll come home and, you know, make yeah. up songs and all of that kind of stuff like they do.
1: Yeah. But I've, I'm hugely envious of people who can play the guitar. I've always wanted to. But by the time I was old enough to want to, I was too old because I could play the piano to have the patience to go back to the beginning. Yes. And the things that were really, you know, I watched other people in my school year go, Oh yeah, just go to the G minor minus seven augmented six. It's like that. Um, <laughs> And just, no, 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 no. I don't have time. I can only do D. Um, yeah. So, but I'm hugely envious of people who can pick up a guitar and go, it just goes like this. All right, fine. Yeah, all right, you get on with it.
2: <laughs> not yeah, not they... envious,
1: not resentful at all.
0: <laughs> when I have played with with the guitar and I did toy with the idea of buying a ukulele when my nephew was born, just to have something like that to do with him. and And I thought, you know, I can't handle six strings because yes, I have enough fingers, but I can't move them all quickly enough, sort of like what you said. And then I was looking at it going, I'm not really sure that having two fewer strings is going to make that much of a difference. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it is a patience thing. You know, it's like, I can't learn this quickly enough to be able to do something with it. And that just frustrates me. So I'll just go sing with the kid instead. I know how to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it works. We teach, funnily enough, we teach ukulele at, at my school. And it's a funny thing, because the vast majority of them will never go any further, but it's one of the things that we kind of believe in at the school and is very much my philosophy, is if you teach 45 children something and one of them take it further, you've won. Yes. Um, and that really matters. So if that gets one of them to be a guitarist and then eventually you know be headlining Glastonbury in 20 years or whatever <laughs> Because we did that, you know. I right. knew that one when. I,
0: absolutely. Five. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, which I think is I think is good. It's it is about exposing children to as many different stimuli as possible to see what what gets them. What are they fascinated by? You can see the kids who the maths is like music to them. They look at it and they watch it flow,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that's just beautiful to behold um and then there are others you watch i've got you know 10 11 year old kids in my class who are doing things with language that i envy and i just and then there then there's art i i cannot draw mm-hmm. uh, my stick men look like they've been involved in a hideous car accident <laughs> um, uh, and i watch these children draw and i think my god you must take that somewhere it's so good and you're 10
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I just yeah i I hope they do. I hope that's where it goes
2: me
0: too and and I'm wondering since since you do get to watch them in so many different contexts, is there anything that teaching that age level has taught you about following your curiosity or your your creativity or or just sparking someone's interest in something that might be useful to people who are older than ten?
1: Yeah, ignore all the rules. <laughs> Ignore all no rules. Um, there are no rules. There's, there's lots of things going on when you're – I like the phrase, follow your curiosity. Um, but when we're talk, talking about creativity, I suppose, it is, it is about curiosity. But creativity is a combination of something you like and something you can do, and then you've got to put the damned work in.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And trying to – that's easier to get children to do but it's not impossible for adults to do. That's what I discovered through, you know, learning how to write. I still struggle because perfectionist and et cetera, I look at the writing still to publish and I think, oh, I just changed that phrase slightly. But I got better because I had to do it and I actively went out in my late thirties, early forties and went, I need to really look at how people are using language in order Mm -hmm. to use language. It helped I was a teacher teaching children to write already because they already had those kind of basics. But but if you're going to try to be interesting and entertaining, you need to look at how that works, which is not to say that it is mechanical because it Mm -hmm. can't be. Right. And it comes – and all of these things, and I think that's the hardest thing about anything of being creative is some of it comes – from knowledge and understanding and learning that if you play a B flat chord, E flat is a chord that is going to fix closer to that than G. Mm-hmm. Um you can you can do B flat to G, but you kinda of have to you have to know how all that works together. And that's the learning. But then there's a part of it that comes out of nowhere. A part of it that you look at it and you think, I look at Particularly the requiem I wrote when I was a teenager, and I think I don't know where this would, this came from, and I don't think I could do it again. Yes. Um. So you've got two things going on. Even as an as an adult, sometimes you have to do the hard graft, and you also have to trust yourself. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that children are much better placed to do both things. Children are used to doing work. They have homework. That's their life. They are. They go into school to learn stuff. When you're an adult, you you don't stop because obviously you go to new jobs and you have to learn systems and so forth. But you you know enough. You're not open. I think, and I'm maybe talking about myself. That's all I can talk about. <laughs> you're not necessarily open enough to realise you actually need to do some hard learning here. Mm-hmm. Um, And at the same time, children trust their instincts much more than adults do. Adults second-guess themselves all the time. I do it all the time. Constantly, I'll write write something and think, is that good? Is that bad? Children will just write. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes it's just genius. It's absolutely brilliant because they're not really thinking hard. They might not be getting all the full stops and capital letters in the right place, but that can come later. That's right. an awful, terrible thing for a teacher to say. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> no, quote me on that because they're allowed to be creative so long as they then go back and fix the capital yeah. letters and the stops dots. Um, but sometimes they come up with these moments of sheer beauty in their writing
2: mm-hmm.
1: because they're not overthinking. So if there are lessons we can take from children into adulthood for being creativity, it's that you've got to be open to learning your craft. You've got to be able to go... Um, I don't know enough about this. I need to work harder. Mm -hmm. The Brandon Sanderson thing I mentioned earlier, he said, you need to trust yourself enough to be bad. Start by writing a bad book and then go through and make it better rather than stopping writing after chapter two because you think you're writing a bad book. The the quote, which I loved, was, if you do that, you'll never be any good at endings. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it.
0: It is, but he's absolutely right. I mean, and yeah. that first draft is going to be bad. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. may not be like, you know, bad along the lines of this is the worst thing that anyone's ever written and you should never be allowed to pick up a pen and a pencil paper ever again. I but, hope no
1: one ever says that to me, although someone came close. I'll tell you about that in a moment.
0: <laughs> but, but, you know, it it's still, it's not going to be as good as it's going to get. It's no. it, it is by definition the worst it will be when it's a first First draft because it's got nowhere to go but up and and as to that sort of review i have to say when when i encountered my first bad reviews of my book which i was not prepared for you know you think that you'll be prepared you're you're not um there were there were two things that happened one a friend of mine sent me a an article on the web that was basically a collection of bad reviews of books that are really considered to be fabulous books. Now <laughs> I don't remember what all was on it, except I do know that the New York times panned the handmaid's tale. And when oh, I read, was really a terrible book. <laughs> I thought, yes. when I read that review, I thought, okay, if this is what they said about Margaret Atwood, I yeah. can, I can deal. But the other thing was that I, had been emailing one of my grad school advisors who is quite the prolific author in her own right, Rachel Pollack. And and we had bonded in grad school because of yeah. Dr. Who. So we are always. Doctor emailing, who's always
1: there, isn't it? Always
0: there. Um, we always email back and forth after new episodes and things like that. So we have an ongoing conversation, even though it's been 10 years since I finished. And I mentioned this to her and she wrote back and she said that, I don't remember which thing it was that she wrote. She may or may not even have told me, but she said someone declared it the very worst thing that had ever been written in the universe. <laughs> and that at first she looked at it and she thought, wow, that must really be bad. But she mentioned in the email that she wished she still had a copy of it because, you know, okay, I've hit the worst. The, the worst in the universe ever there's yeah. nowhere else for me to go but up
2: absolutely
0: so, yes. you know and i thought well that's great that's that's the perfect way to look at that you know you can't get yeah. any worse because this is the worst it's ever been in the history of time so keep going because you have to get better
1: yeah yeah there's no no the only way as they say yes is up yeah, yeah um no so it is it's the the two things i suppose are the work and trusting your own instincts and your own instincts will lead you astray and they will get you wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at that point you do the work again.
0: And you learn and, from what went wrong.
1: And you learn, learn from what went wrong. And, and the two things piece together. Like I say, I was also very fortunate to have Robert mm-hmm. who is the nicest critic. I ever. <laughs>
0: I can imagine that.
1: Um, he, he, he's very much, you know, this isn't quite working and, or he'll do it in a jokey way. Um, and he'll suggest he'll suggest solutions.
2: Mm-hmm. He
1: won't just say this isn't working, go away. Um, and I, I do a lot of I do a run through all the books he edits. I tend to do a run through those as well. And again, I try and take the same approach. I don't think this is working, but here is how I think it can be fixed,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is a, a, a good way to be. And I hope I hope that comes across in the way I do it. I briefly mentioned. I showed a chunk of my Requiem back when I was a very young, I think I was a very young 18-year-old, even for being 18, I was very young for 18, um, to a composition tutor at my university whose name I shall not mention to protect the guilty. (laughs) And he said, and bear in mind I'm now 45 years old and I can remember it verbatim, he said, yes, well, all of us can set pretentious lyrics to derivative music. (gasps) Oh, and so nearly 30 years down the line, I can quote him. And that nearly derailed me completely.
0: Absolutely. Wow. It's amazing that it didn't.
1: Yeah. At 18. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe when you're in your mid twenties, you are, have a little bit more. And nowadays you have the internet and people to send you look at this review of the Handmaid's Tale. Yes. And things like that. <laughs> at that point I was quite derailed. Fortunately, I, I did. I think, well, I, I basically went back to my main tutor and said, I don't want any more composition lessons, please. If I'm going to write music, I'm going to do it on my own terms mm-hmm. and in my own way. Um, and I did keep that bit in as part of the Requiem and the people who performed it and the people who listened to it did like it. So, ooh, pretentious and derivative as it was, it still went down okay.
0: How, how was that declaration received by your main tutor?
1: Uh, what, when I said, I'm not going to have any more composition mm-hmm. lessons, He nodded and smiled. I think he knew. My main tutor was great. He was a very, a man with his feet very firmly on the ground. He knew, he knew who everyone was. He knew who I was. He knew who the other people in the department were. He just went, yeah, okay, I can do that.
0: Oh, I'm so glad. But you're reminding me, I, you know, I think so many people get derailed because they go out and they write something, they create something and they're so excited about it that they just want to show it to everyone and they don't think about who they're showing it to. It's like what you said before about, you know, I chose very carefully who listened to this album that I made. And yeah. and there's something so important about that, especially at the very beginning of that process, because if if you have, you know, the first five pages of something that you've just written and... You you just you can't stop thinking about it. You want to write more, but you're so excited you have to have somebody else listen to it, and you don't choose that person really, really carefully. Yeah, anything they say can stop you in your tracks. I, yeah. I've told people, you know, at that stage, what you have is made of gossamer and moon dust, and yeah. and there's barely anything holding it together. Once you get to the point where you know you have a hundred pages or something that resembles something close to a finished work, not necessarily finished, but enough of it that you know what it is and you feel secure about it and you're like, this I feel really, really good about, then you still should probably be careful, but I don't think you have to be as careful because I don't think you'll be derailed as easily as you are in that very beginning stage. But you still you know, don't just walk up to some random stranger on the street because they're, first of all, going to look at you like, hello, crazy person. Why do you want me to listen? <laughs> Why are you to-
1: handing me a manuscript?
2: To- <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. But, but still, you know, you, you want to pick the person who can look at it and see the potential in it, even if it's not perfect and know how to encourage you rather than saying something like, that particular person said to you which makes you want to you know go home and dig yourself a hole bury yourself in it and never come out again
1: yeah i think choosing choosing the first person or the first people is very important and very difficult because um this is going to sound like a ridiculous thing now i'm going to say it's the halitosis argument
2: <laughs> okay
1: it's it's the what your best friend needs to tell you argument mm. someone who can very nicely say there is a problem and here is how I can help you fix it. Or give you the encouragement you need whilst pointing out the flaws. You can't have someone who's going to say, oh yes, it's absolutely brilliant when it's not. Right. And you can't have someone who's going to say it's absolutely dreadful when it's not. Right. You need an honest friend. The funny thing is with the exception of writing the Dr. Hebert with Robert because I was writing The Doctor Who with Robert. I have never done that in my entire life. I have only ever presented completely finished works to people. They've never seen works in progress. They've never mm-hmm. seen halfway throughs. They've never seen anything. The first anyone heard of any of the songs on my album was when I handed them a CD. It was done and it was finished by that point. Mm-hmm. So I never did that.
0: Yeah, well, and, and after that comment, I can't blame you. I really can't. But you know, it also sounds from the way you talk about it, like you knew I did this for me and I'm happy with it. And that's really the thing that matters and you might enjoy it too. And I hope you do, but I did this for me. So your opinion isn't going to stop me in no small part because I've already finished it, but it's also not necessarily going to completely throw me off, even if you hate it at this point.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a huge advantage of deciding that the, the things you're going to do are the things you're going to do for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what else happens to them? If anything else happens to them, you know, my, my girls will probably end up listening to my album, like, you know, music to slit your wrists to, um, <laughs> um at some point, And they'll know that I did that. And, That'll be fine, or they might not. They might sit there thinking, "God, what was he on?" <laughs> um, and that's fine too. I don't mind. I did it for me, in the mo- for the most part. And I think even a lot of published people, published authors, musicians, etc. In the end, they've done it for them in the first instance. It's great that they can make a living out of it. It's oh, fantastic. absolutely. But I think a lot of people do it for them. So I suppose that's my my other thought is. If you want to do it, do it. Don't worry about audience. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. If you want to do it, do it. When it's finished, then see where you want to be with it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you are your first audience. Yeah. Always.
1: And you can frequently be your most critical.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Well, my second most critical. I met my most critical at university. But hey, let's (laughs) get off with that story. We're done with that now.
0: I think though when you're aware that you're frequently your most critical audience, that, that gives you enough perspective so that, you know, you can step back from your own self-criticism a little bit to keep yourself going too.
1: I think that's probably true. I think it also makes the work better. I think, I think. You sit there and go, um, yeah, this isn't working. This isn't working. I know this mm-hmm. isn't working. Um, for me, in all things be it you know words or music structure is the key to me yes it matters that you get the right turn of phrase
2: mm-hmm.
1: um it matters that you you have the right chord here but in the end you need to step back and the structure of the whole needs to hang together and that's really important and that's where i'm i really 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 self-criticize i said no that doesn't go to there but you need to go somewhere else you need to go somewhere mm-hmm. else um, this is too long. You need to cut something. That's mm-hmm. one of the hardest things in the world. This thing, this verse, this paragraph you love, you need to delete it.
0: Yes, it's Faulkner's Kill Your Little Darlings. It really is Kill yes. Your Little
1: Darlings, yeah. And that's that's hard. I learned that. I did a master's in composition for film and television, which I've not done much with. Um, but there were two essays that I had to write on vast subjects, which were only 2,000 words. Ooh. that's when I discovered how to write essays, in mm-hmm. that I would write 4,000 words and then brutally cut them yep. to pieces. And that's the purpose Robert serves me nowadays, because <laughs> now I write 4,000 words and he brutally cuts them down. <laughs> but he does it in a terribly nice way.
2: <laughs> yeah. And
1: I'm trying really hard to apply it myself for volume two, so... We'll see how that's going.
0: We'll see. But I, I also, to your point about structure, I know there there certainly have been times when a piece of writing has not come together and I've realized that it's because the structure isn't right. And once I figure out the structure, it'll yeah. it'll all happen almost as if by magic. But until yeah. then, it's, it's like you're trying to build one house with plans for another and you haven't figured it out yet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And often, I mean, in- Terry Pratchett fascinated me in this because he wrote his books in the wrong order. So mm-hmm. he, he didn't start at the beginning and go through them. And this is fiction, so you kind of you feel the need that the plot develops in mm-hmm. order. He'd go, right, this scene is scene 69. I'm going to write that scene now. Now I'm going to write scene 34. Now I'm going to write scene 73. And he had no notes as far as I knew. He just did it. Oof. To but do that without
0: notes. Wow. Yeah.
1: I, I, I mean, I may be wrong on that. I may be wrong on that. I, mm. I don't know enough about how he worked. But as I understood it, he just he had the whole structure in his head before he started. He had the whole thing. And it just kind of, he'd just go and sort. To the point that, you know, he was still writing books when he was suffering very severely from Alzheimer's. Yes. He couldn't tie his own shoelaces. And yet he could hold the plot and language of a book together in his head. And I just think that is astonishing. And I, I, Absolutely. I bow down to and I think mm-hmm. the Matt was wonderful anyway, but to be oh, able yes. to achieve that. Yeah. To be able to achieve that was just astonishing.
0: And and I mean I'm I'm an unrepentant pantser when it comes to writing. So I if I outline I have won't write the book because I already know what happens. But, yeah. but even so the structure comes in, in terms of now, what do I do with this giant chunk of text that I have and how do I make it work? And, yeah. and it's not just, Oh, look on page 52, I said the car was red and that this person was involved in this piece of plot that then somehow morphed into this other thing by page 87. And I have to fix that, but it's, it's also just, you know, going through it and, and, and just saying what needs to be trimmed and how is this working and, and all yeah. of that. You you're basically reverse engineering it then.
1: Absolutely. And the reverse engineering is incredibly powerful because that that's the way you get payoff in terms of, in terms of story, whatever you're doing, reverse mm-hmm. engineering, going back in, going, right. I I'm now setting this up to pay off later. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. But the best example, if you come across the memory palace, so this is go really chatty all of a sudden is that all no, right That's fine. But <laughs> right, The Memory Palace is um, a series of short stories about American history by a guy called Nate Demayo. It's another podcast there. Okay. They're about 10 15 minutes long. But he did one about an Egyptian temple that had been literally picked up and lifted to um, a museum in New York, literally mm-hmm. piece by piece. Yeah. You've been there. Yeah? Yep. And the temple was sacred to I think god twins who had fallen into a lake and become gods by drowning or whatever Mm -hmm. and he drops that in right at the beginning and right at the end he talks about all the tourists walking around it and how um how parents watch their toddlers carefully lest they fall into the um fall into the water and are deified and that that I nearly cried mm-hmm. because the structure to get to that line, the way it, it fell together, I just thought, this is just magnificent storytelling. And that's all about the structure. Yes. And I heartily recommend that. And I have nothing to do with Nate and No shares in it whatsoever. <laughs> but it's a fabulous podcast. Um,
0: I will check it out.
1: It, I'll tell you what it did ruin for me. It ruined The Greatest Showman. Oh, because okay. He talks quite a lot about Phineas T. Barnum, and Phineas T. Barnum was a. Are you a family-friendly podcast? <laughs> I'm assuming you are. If you weren't a family-friendly podcast, I would give you a word at this point that describes precisely <laughs> what I think of Phineas T. Barnum, and the greatest show does not depict his story in anything uh-huh. approaching
0: an accurate manner. A little whitewashing, eh?
1: Oh, it goes far further than White
0: fr- Oh, okay.
1: But I'll, I'll let you find out for yourself. But anyone out there who's watched The Greatest Showman, go on Wikipedia Phineas T. Barnum. Okay. To be fair, though, he was a good creator and he was good at structuring.
0: Well, yeah, you know, and that's, that's the thing. It's, everybody has their talents, even, even if they're flawed.
1: Yeah, and we're all flawed.
0: Using your powers for good. Is the oh, yeah, using
1: your powers for good. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we try. We try.
0: We do. I'm
1: going to have that on my tombstone, I think. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I tried.
0: <laughs> well, I know that it's getting lateish over there, but, but this has been a great conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it, and I hope you well, do.
1: Me- absolutely me too like i said it's, it's been very rambly and very all over the place so you know cut it to pieces do whatever that's, you want to it oh no it, it's great make it make more sense if you like but it's great the way it is well it's been lovely talking to you thank you very much for inviting me
0: that's our show my thanks to anthony wilson and to you for joining us please don't forget to subscribe rate and review and share this episode with a friend You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.